Back chat. Back chat. Back chat. Politics and current affairs. Back chat. Back chat. Back chat. Your alternative to talk back. Yes, that's right. You are listening to Backchat here on FBI Radio, the freshest wrap of news and current affairs. I'm Swetha Das. And I'm Shami Sivasubramanian. As always, we're going to give you the news you may not have heard on your airwaves. Before we begin the show, we'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we broadcast and pay our respects to elders past, present and future. This week, we're reflecting on National Reconciliation Week, which runs until Wednesday. Our first guest on the show is Richard Weston, co-chair for the Family Matters Campaign and National Voice for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children. He'll be speaking to us about the over-representation of Indigenous kids in the out-of-home care system. After that, we're joined by academic and writer Summer May Finley to break down what non-Indigenous people can do towards reconciliation and the distinction between an ally and an accomplice. Join in on the conversation and text us in on 0409-945-945 or tweet us at Batchet FBI. It is absolutely laughable. The woman's off her tree. Backchat, your alternative to talk back. National Reconciliation Week offers an opportunity for sombre reflection on Australia's colonial past. But one of the enduring issues faced by Indigenous communities is the forced removal of children from their families. The majority of these kids will go to bed tonight in a place that is not their own, disconnected from kin, country, um, country and culture. In New South Wales alone, 40% of children are in the out-of-home care system and they are Indigenous, even those that make up, even though they only make up 5% of the state's youth population. Nationally, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander kids are over 10 times more likely to be removed than non-Indigenous children. We're joined by Richard Weston from the Family Matters campaign to explain this over-representation and how to tackle it head on. Hi there, Richard. Good morning. On Sorry Day, the, na- the nation acknowledges the injustice and grief experienced by the stolen generations. Yet, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children are vastly overrepresented in Australia's child protection systems. Why is this the case? Well, the lives of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are, are very complex. Um, that, um, and they've been made complex by the history of this country. And you've mentioned the stolen generations, which is a big big part of it. Um, More than a third of uh, our people uh, are living in poverty Um, and many of the reasons that our our kids end up in um, child protection systems are because of socio-economic disadvantage. The primary reason, one of the main reasons cited for removal is neglect, which is a very subjective uh, measure. So there's just not enough... um, understanding in the system about what the, how the complexity impacts on our people. So we have a system that primarily reports, it substantiates, and then it removes. And we need a system that takes account of the, the life situation of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, provides more for supports for families so kids can stay with their families, stay connected to culture, stay strong in their identity. And at the moment, we don't have a system that does that. And we are seeing a growing number of our children going into out-of-home care. And the trajectories show, the removal trajectories show that these, these numbers are going to double in the next 10 years. So do you think the system can be fixed or does it need to be overhauled completely? Look, I think there is 
um, some useful developments in different parts of the country. Um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have long called for the um, full implementation of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander child placement principle, and that call was part of the Bringing Them Home report over 20 years ago, and also calling for uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander family-led decision-making being embedded into these systems. And that's happening in some places, but it's not happening to the degree that it needs to. And the child placement principle provides a number of elements that enable the system to keep Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children connected to culture. So if a child does have to be removed, the preference is for them to be pla uh, placed in kinship care, so somebody from their, from their own family um, or their own community that are going to keep them uh, connected to the life of the community. And the family-led decision-making is, is a way to involve families in the process all the way along. It helps families to take greater responsibility and it helps uh, the department do better in placing children in, in care where it's going to keep them, keep them safe keep them connected and the experience we have with the stolen generation is that when children can't become disconnected from family and community they have lifelong experience lifelong disadvantage family matters believes the number of indigenous children in out-of-home care will double in the next decade the campaign's goal is to eliminate overrepresentation by 2040 what steps are needed to meet this target well, we need, a, we need greater accountability and transparency. And one of the measures the campaign has been calling for is the establishment of a National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Children's Commissioner uh, to provide that accountability and oversight of the system. But we're also calling for the establishment of commissioners in every state. So we have three at the moment. We have one in South Australia, one in Victoria, and recently appointed to... Queensland was Natalie Lewis, who's, who was a co-chair of the Family Matters campaign. So there are movements in the right direction, but we need greater investment um, and we need a greater engagement and partnership with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and organisations to bring greater accountability to the system, greater oversight, but better policy and better processes that, uh, you know, keep, that are designed to keep children in their families as much as possible and seeing removal as a last resort rather than a first resort. You're listening to Backchat on FBI Radio 94.5 FM with Swatha and Shami. We're speaking with Richard Weston from the Family Matters campaign to hear how the stolen generations continue in the child protection system. Now, Richard, for Indigenous youth who haven't been in the out-of-home care system, how does intergenerational trauma from the stolen generations still impact them? Well, we know that trauma is passed down from generation to generation. Um, it has a big impact on... It can have a big impact on behaviours. It can have a big impact on people's ability to access services like education and like employment. And unless we have the opportunity in our communities to heal, then those traumas can play out for a long, long time over, the, over a person's life. And that's what we've learned from the stolen generations. We know that our stolen generations experienced great hurt, great pain, but they also carried this high level of trauma through their lives and have passed it on from, from one generation to the next. We need more opportunities 
to provide healing and support healing processes in our communities. And in fact, New South Wales has a has a state uh, development plan that includes healing in it, and they've done some work in that space. Um, but we need more of it. We need more uh, understanding of the impacts of trauma, but we need more opportunities to heal because healing draws on our strengths, and that's what will help us recover and and help young people go on to live um you know, better lives, happier lives, and, and lives that are full of, full of hope and aspiration. ABSAC, the peak Aboriginal children protection body in New South Wales, will have its funding sliced in half uh, for this next financial year. How do you think this budget cut will affect children in care? Well, I think it's um, hamstringing a, a really important voice in the, the policy debates that go on in the child protection in the child protection space. ASEC is a great organisation. They're well led by Tim Island. Um, you know, he's, a, he's a, a great advocate for children and families in New South Wales. Um, look, I think it'll, it'll have some impact on their, their program effort. I don't know the, the, the detail of that, but I certainly don't think it'll dampen their voice. Um, they've been around for a long time and they're uh, an important partner with the Family Matters campaign. And, uh, you know, I just hope, I, I just don't understand the thinking behind why the government would do that. All governments around Australia, including New South Wales, signed up, have signed up to a new closing the gap agreement. And part of that agreement is to have strong partnerships with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities and people, grow the Aboriginal community controlled sectors, so greater investment in building Aboriginal uh, community controlled services and partnerships with communities and making mainstream with making mainstream services more accountable for better outcomes for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. So whilst the New South Wales Government has signed up to the Closing the Gap Agreement and the principles and we're just in the final stages of negotiating targets, um, cutting the funding of ABSEC in this way seems to go totally against that so it's, it's it's a strange decision i don't think it's a i don't think it's an intelligent decision um because at this time with these growing numbers of our kids going into into out of home care in new south wales um the 10 times aboriginal and Torres Strait with children are 10 times more likely to be removed than non-indigenous kids we need an organization like absec um being part of the conversation being part of the advocacy providing some accountability, providing good policy advice to help departments do better around Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children. So it's, you know, it's just a decision I can't understand. So have coronavirus measures and the constant change in restrictions affected First Nations children in care? Yeah, we think so. We think that the uh, um, many of the, the challenges and the vulnerabilities that our children in care of experience have been exacerbated by um, the coronavirus, um, the ability to connect with family and have family visits and those sort of things and monitoring visits of, of children in care have been affected. We've, we've really been trying to unpack what the effects have been. It's very difficult to get that information from across the country. Um, but we know that ABSEC in New South Wales has been doing a great job in, in maintaining those connections and putting out resources that, to assist families, um, making some funding available to support families that, that need that sort of support. Um, and that's why we need strong Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander organisations like ABSEC 
um, particularly when we have emergencies like uh, like this pandemic we're all dealing with. So in March, welfare groups urged the New South Wales Premier for systemic reforms on child protection. Is it on state or federal governments to take action? And is it likely that we'll see any changes in the near future? Look, it's, it's the responsibility of all governments. Um, we need national leadership on this issue. And the Prime Minister himself has said in, in his Closing the Gap speech that one of his major priorities is for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children to have to do better, to have better lives. Um, so we need that national leadership. So that's why we call for a national children's commissioner to be put in place. But we also need the states to step up. And, and New South Wales has, um, is one of those states that has the largest Aboriginal population in Australia. So if we're going to get better outcomes for Aboriginal people and close the gap going forward, New South Wales is one of those states that we have to do very well in. And we need to focus on the well-being, the health of our children. We need to create opportunities for our children to enjoy their childhood, to have happy, uh, vibrant childhoods. Because if we have happy, vibrant children, healthy children, we will have healthy adults in the future. So organisations like ABSET become very important, but governments have to play their role as well and they have to start reaching out and partnering with Aboriginal organisations in a meaningful way, in a way that's designed to deliver solutions. Well said. Thank you so much for speaking with us this morning, Richard. Very happy to. Thank you. That was Richard Weston, co-chair of the Family Matters campaign on the state of -of out-of-home care for Indigenous youth. That's right. Don't turn that down because next up is Summer May Finlay on how non-Indigenous Australians can better support Indigenous people and issues this Reconciliation Week. And of course, we want you to join in on the conversation. You can text us in on 0409-945-945 or you can tweet us at BackchatFBI. We're going to go to a song right now. This is a banger by Backchat's favourite hip-hop artist, Dobby. This is my mind. It is absolutely laughable. The woman's off her tree. Backchat, your alternative to talk back. That's right, Ace. You are listening to Backchat here on FBI Radio. Now, we are talking about Reconciliation Week uh, this week on the show today. A survey by Reconciliation Australia revealed that while the majority of Australians support reconciliation, a sizable portion are stumped on how they can help. We're joined by Yorta, Yorta woman and lecturer at the University of Wollongong, Summer May Finley, on how non-Indigenous people should engage in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander space and what we need to improve on beyond Reconciliation Week. Hi, Summer. Good morning. How are you? I'm very well. I'm very glad to have you on the show. More more than 90% of non-Indigenous Australians support reconciliation, but less than a third know what to do to support that movement. What do you make of those figures? Look, it doesn't actually surprise me. Being a lecturer at uni, I see a whole range of people from across Australia come in and sit in my classroom and I, and I teach Indigenous studies. And I think one of the biggest issues that we have is that there's a lack of understanding of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people's history, post-colonisation, and also our cultures. So it's fantastic to see that most people support reconciliation, but it's definitely not surprising to see that they're not quite sure what to do. 
So it's important to recognize that reconciliation can mean different things to different people. Can you help us unpack what reconciliation means to you? Sure. For me personally, when I think about reconciliation, I'm thinking about, you know, in an ideal world, if I could paint a picture of reconciliation, it would be where Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people were well understood within our communities, that we uh, and our cultures were celebrated and recognised as the first peoples of this country, where we could actually experience an Australia that was free of racism, that actually grasped the concept of how traumatising many of the historical policies and colonisation have been for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And I just want to actually see a country which comes together and recognises its diversity and celebrates that diversity with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander diversity being part of that. So this month marks the 20th anniversary of the walk for reconciliation across the Harbour Bridge. Have we made progress since then? Absolutely. Look, I was 19. (laughs) I was 19 when when that bridge walk happened and I, I watched it on the news and I remember thinking at the time how amazing it was to see so many Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people coming together and actually walking across the bridge for reconciliation. I mean, when I was 19, there was very few people in the media that were Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander. I certainly, when I went to uni, uh, there was only a handful of other Aboriginal students there and a handful of Aboriginal lecturers. And we're actually seeing more and more Aboriginal people in all aspects of society, whether it's business or education. We're seeing on media and we're actually seeing a celebration of our cultures and a recognition more so of some of the the really crappy historical um, policies. So there certainly has been changes. So do you think there's enough political will from our governments around this issue? Look, I think, I mean, there's a number of governments across this country and I think they're all at different stages. We know that Victoria is progressing with the treaty under Daniel Andrews' government, a Labor government. Uh, we certainly know that you no know, Liberal government has had a genuine dialogue about treaty. I think that there is certainly will to do more across all governments, but I certainly don't think that, for the most part, that most governments are ready to do what Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples need to do. We can see that with particularly the Liberal government's rejection of the Uluru Statement, uh, particularly the right at the beginning and the uh, element in there about a voice to Parliament. Um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people were clear in the Uluru Statement around what we wanted and the government, three years on, has yet to actually make a commitment to that. So I certainly think there is some political will to do some stuff. There just is not enough political will to do what Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are calling for. So now that you've mentioned it, it's been a couple of years since the Uluru Statement from the heart. To give us some background, can you explain what the Uluru Statement is and whether you think there's enough support for it? The Uluru Statement is a statement that was put together by a collective of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people from around the country. And what it's calling for is three things. So it's calling for a voice to parliament, which is constitutionally enshrined. It's also calling for a makarata. And underneath that is two components. One of that's a truth-telling component, so a truth-telling about the real history in this country. And about 60 countries around the world have actually gone through a similar process, so this is not a new concept. South Africa was one of those countries. The other part is a treaty, which is an agreement-making between government and Indigenous peoples. And in terms of if there's enough support, there certainly is a lot of support for the Uluru Statement. The issue that we have is that 
we really need our politicians to sign up and actually be really brave. It really will be something that requires bravery and courage because this has not been done before. Indigenous peoples traditionally had treaties and the likes before we got to a stage of having a country like we have Australia now. So this will be a retrospective almost treaty and I think that governments, as I said, need to be brave and because our people are supporting it. You're listening to Backchat on FBI Radio 94.5 FM with Swetha and Shami. Summer May Finlay is on the line to, dis- to explain how we can listen, learn and support Indigenous communities during Reconciliation Week. Uh, you wrote an article for Crokey about how non-Indigenous people can help progress reconciliation. Uh, you talk about the difference between being an ally and an accomplice. Could you break that down for us? So, so I mean... There are lots of different people that are engaging in the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander space at lots of different levels. We see a lot of allies that stand with us at different times of the year, particularly say NAIDOC and Reconciliation Week. Um, An ally is someone who does promote Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander issues. But then the accomplices take that a step further. They stand with us at all times, even when things are challenging. And I know lots of accomplices that I've worked with, non-Aboriginal people who are fantastic and are there through all issues and actually recognise that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander leadership is really important. So when I think about an accomplice, they recognise, so I used to be in theatre and I think about it in theatre terms where the accomplices are like the backstage crew. Mm. They support the, the, the directors and the, the producers and the actors, which are the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, in putting on whatever it is we need to do, whether or not it is a march, whether or not it's a campaign. And we really just need our accomplices because as we're only 3% of the population. The 97% really need to do the heavy lifting around this. Yeah, I love that explanation. So, Summer, what are some things non-Indigenous accomplices should be aware of when advocating with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities? Well, the first thing I would say is that non-Indigenous peoples always have a role within our space, but what they don't have is a right to make a decision on behalf of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. So, first and foremost, non-Indigenous peoples need to recognise that they need to be led by Aboriginal people when working in our space. The second thing is they should never speak for us. So, we as Aboriginal peoples have a voice. It is fantastic when our non-Indigenous allies and and accomplices make um, space for us and also make sure that they're advocating for us. But what we need them to do is also say, actually, you need to be speaking to this other person rather than me that's Aboriginal. Um, And I also think that they really need to be educating other non-Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. So, as I said, we're 3% of the population. If we literally just spent time educating the 97% we'd do nothing else. So we really need other people to really be assisting us in educating the population, whether that's calling out racism when you're down at the pub and someone has a crack or makes a a joke, whether that's actually talking to their children about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander history and culture. But we really just want you to be part of this and make sure that you're standing with us. So where can our listeners go for more information and how can they get practically involved in all of this? Well, obviously Reconciliation Australia has a lot of really good tools on there, but so does Reconciliation New South Wales. And in particular, they have a toolkit around the Uluru Statement and there's lots of things in there that can actually help people to promote the Uluru Statement. 
The other thing you can do is just, you know, amplify Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people's voices. So jump on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander media like Indigenous X and actually just read their articles and promote and share them through your social media channels. And the other thing you can do is literally just start looking at literature like Anita Heiss's literature, Bruce Pascoe's, and maybe just if you're in a book club, for example, um, start reading at some of those books in your book club. That's wonderful advice. Thank you so much, Summer. We'll definitely share those links as well on our Twitter page. Fantastic. Thank you. That was academic and writer Summer Mae Finlay on how non-Indigenous Australians should be more proactive and less tokenistic. Uh, every week of the year, not just this week, to support reconciliation. That's right. Hey, you know, that's all the time we've got for the show today. Another big thanks to our producers, Natalie Sekolovska, Eden Faithful, Millie Roberts, Vanessa Lim, and Nicole Ilya Goyeva. And thanks again to our guests, Richard Weston and Summer May Finlay. We'll catch you next week, but before we do, we're going to play a song. That's right. We are going to play a song. <laughs> this is by an incredible local artist called Anna Dot. Her new album, Tangled, just dropped yesterday, and you can check it out on Spotify and Apple Music. Music right now. This is 33 hours. Hope you guys have a great weekend. Thank you so much for listening.